1: Libby returns tomorrow. She's enjoying some rest, a long weekend. So lucky me. I get to talk with our Zoomer squad, always one of the highlights of the week here on Fight Back. Gentlemen, hello to all three of you. Hi there. Good morning,
2: Jane. Happy to be a highlight.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good sign, isn't it? Making like, yeah. the
2: highlight real afterwards. <laughs> uh,
1: David Kravitz is chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder is acting chief policy officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge is senior editor at Zoomer Magazine. We will discuss the decision. If you heard in Bob's news, there, guys, by the Ford PCs to move up the date to vaccinate all long-term care residents in the province, subject to Pfizer deliveries. First, though, I would like to get your reaction to a story we've been running in the news today about the long-term care inspection at Roberta Place in Barrie. So for some quick background, Roberta Place has been devastated by COVID-19, including cases of the UK variant since January 8th. A long-term care inspector visited the nursing home on January 12th and 13th, I have the report in front of me, and concluded that the licensee had failed to ensure the home was a safe and secure environment for its residents. Some of the violations included having COVID-19 positive residents in the same room as residents who would not tested positive and staff members tending to residents with and without the virus. Bill, I'll get your reaction first.
2: Oh so sad so sad and so hard to understand you know uh Carp has been talking about uh, the the problems with the government ignoring the reports of inspectors at first they weren't even inspecting now they are they're ignoring them the excuse uh that we were given was well the the staff was so busy they didn't have time to separate the residents so uh, so that they wouldn't become in fact, it's totally uh, inexcusable.
1: David, this is exactly why CARP's campaign continues to gain momentum. Stories like this one. Well, it's
3: true. But what's even more disturbing is this. The Ontario government uh, posts every inspection report online. And it turns out, um, I'm looking at the Roberta Place uh, reports right now, including the one you reported. But what you may not know
1: David, I've got you a bit. uh, You're off your phone there a bit. All right. Sorry. They were in the home. They were in
3: Roberta Place on July 16th and again on September 16th and again on December 21st. And only on December 21st did they even mention COVID. They were in there four previous inspections for incidents. Now, that's fair enough. Uh, complaint, verbal abuse. I think one, there was another one about improper storage of medication. But all this underscores is what we've been saying all along. They had all summer long to go into every single home in the province and say, wave one is over, wave two is coming. What shape are you in? What are you doing to get ready? They were actually in Roberta Place four times before this disastrous inspection that you've just reported on. So what were they doing the whole time? And this explains why we think this minister has to go. They didn't do everything that they could have done to create this so-called iron ring around the nursing homes. They sat back and did nothing. Four previous inspections, not a peep.
1: Uh, Peter, what do you garner from that, that they, that they didn't even make note, as David is, is saying there, in those four previous reports?
4: Yeah, well, um, certainly those those previous um, inspectors should be called on the carpet to explain their actions. Um, did the, did the nursing home management uh, cover up the truth? Did they, you know? Like how how come none of these things came out? I, I I think that'll be an interesting outcome from this, to to see why the investigators who are no doubt trained to look at things and and pick things up didn't pick things up because this is the worst outbreak of any nursing home ever. I think isn't it? Like every, I think almost all two all but, two, resident all but got, two
3: residents are infected. Yeah, all right. but two residents are infected. Right.
4: So. Um, so this is the worst outbreak, and um, how was it not noticed? It, it, it's, it's gonna, it, it seems bewildering now, but, but I, I suppose down the road, we'll have to ask these inspectors what they were thinking at the time.
1: David, is it possible that when they were doing those inspections back in the fall, they did not see any violations or concerns that I, COVID could spread quickly?
3: I think it's possible. Uh, I also want to be clear, we're not criticizing that they went in to inspect a complaint. I mean, if you get a complaint and you go and inspect that complaint, that's fine. What I'm criticizing, what CARP is criticizing is last summer, even if you give the ministry a pass for phase one or the first wave, which I think is hard to do, but even if you did for the sake of argument, say, okay, first wave is over, what have we learned? Here's the summer. Go and look at every single nursing home proactively. Don't wait for a complaint. Go into everyone proactively in the summer when the virus, when the pandemic has eased, specifically to look at COVID. What are your plans? Where are they living? What is your infection control? What procedures do you have in place? Do it as a proactive thing, not as a reaction to a complaint. But they just did business as usual, and that, to me, is the core of the problem. Maybe these inspectors didn't say anything. They went in there to look at one complaint, and that's all they looked at, Mm -hmm. business as usual. They didn't go on an emergency footing.
1: Now, Bill, we do know that this most recent report, um, so the inspector was in there on the 12th and 13th, filed the report on the 18th. Well, here we are on the 25th. Meantime, COVID has spread like wildfire in there. I guess in terms of the protocol, it looks like the report was ignored completely.
2: Well, it 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 does, and and, uh, you know there was there is an excuse uh, that was reported, uh, as I said, that said that uh, uh, when when it broke out, there were so many staff uh, affected that they weren't able to move people fast enough to keep the other ones uh, free of it. Well, that you know, where where's the planning in this? You know, one one senior official was quoted as saying that uh, the outbreak makes it clear that care homes need to be vaccinated as soon as we can. Well, what happened last summer uh, when we knew that outbreaks would cause this this sort of thing? They took uh, this many people to die before that made it clear that they had to do something about those homes. It just doesn't follow and, and doesn't look like they've done any planning or followed through on their own reports themselves.
1: And what seems particularly egregious, Peter, is that when this was filed on the 18th, the fact that nobody in long-term care, I mean, I, I, you don't blame the actual staff, but why did long-term care, i.e. Dr. Marilee Fullerton, say this place needs some serious help? I mean, a whole week has gone by since this report was filed. So that seems to be where uh, action is lacking.
4: It, Jane, it's just another example of, of the whole mess that's uh, existing in, in the long-term care department. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a tragic example. And, and, and uh, you know, one will learn from, but, um, you know, and we'll also learn whether it had to happen or not. <laughs>
1: David, is CARP specifically calling, in addition for firing the long-term care minister by the Premier, to bring in the Canadian Armed Forces?
3: I think CARP is calling for putting the entire situation on an emergency, non-business-as-usual footing. And if that means the Armed Forces in Situation A, the Red Cross in Situation B, they've they've got to treat this as a uh, unique emergency where they can't just go by the book, and I think that's been their problem all the way along. That's why they've always been, you know, a day late and a dollar short. Uh, you know that familiar phrase. They just they they're they're not they're treating it by the book. They're not treating it as an all hands on deck emergency situation where you've got to do things a little bit differently. And they wasted the summer. Now they're paying the price. And this, this uh, Roberta Place is, has been placed under management uh, by the local hospital and assisting. But they could have anticipated all of that had they acted in the summer um, for every single home. I did an analysis of 38 nursing homes in Toronto, not one, uh, two references to COVID, not one inspection in the summer specifically designed. To analyze and audit the readiness for wave two of COVID, nothing. You go down the whole list, thirty-seven homes, nothing, not 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 a single inspection. The home in Roncesvalles that's been put under management was in, wasn't even inspected this year in January last. Last year was the last one. So they Hard didn't do anything to get yeah. ready, and that's why we think they've got to change the team over. There. Uh, listen,
1: I want to get you involved in the conversation as well. If you have a loved woman one in a long-term care home or a retirement home and you have some... First-hand experience you can bring to the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. As always, lines are open 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 It's Jane for Libby, along with our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugrich. Uh, Bill, there has been no take-up whatsoever from the Premier or Marilee Fullerton to bring in members of the Canadian Armed Forces, just to get your take on, on yeah. what, what's going on with that. No,
2: well, D- David's absolutely right. This is, this is an emergency, and everything possible has to be, be done. And if that means bringing in the armed forces, then uh, that should be done. And we think that it's dramatic enough and serious enough that they should use every resource that's uh, available. I mean, there, there's so many inconsistencies. I, you know, In addition to what David said, uh, we've even uh, seen that they didn't use all the available vaccines in long-term care before they moved on to hospitals and, and other health care workers. If they had used all the vaccines, if they had vaccinated in all the long-term uh, 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 care homes, then this situation could have been
1: avoided. Well, since you bring it up, let's move along uh, to that part of our conversation, the vaccine rollout. I'm sure you all read last week uh, Dr. Nathan Stahl's comments in the Toronto Star, which we reported here on Zoomer Radio as well, that the rollout of COVID vaccines has been a breathtaking failure, a breathtaking failure. He's a leading geriatrician. He says... He cannot comprehend why the government would not, did not move heaven and earth to vaccinate every single long-term care resident as soon as possible. Uh, Peter, we've heard just this morning that they've moved up the date, but the, it's interesting if you, if you read between the lines. So the date's been moved up from February 15th to February 5th to vaccinate all long-term care residents in the province. But the workers are now going to have to get behind in the line. So it's not like they've become more efficient. They've just decided to do what they should have done in the first place.
4: They've decided that. And also, um, it's a target which may not be able to be hit because um, the Pfizer shipments are drying up next week.
1: Exactly. It's dependent on that.
4: I I don't understand how they're going to fulfill that. Um, ambitious target without any vaccines in the in the fridges you know so uh it, it 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 just looks like it's a lot of public uh posturing um i i agree with dr stall that uh you, you know we everyone knows you don't have to be an epidemiologist to know that this uh virus was was killing nursing homes uh spreading like wildfire in nursing homes where would you vaccinate first nursing homes long-term care mm-hmm. and it wasn't done
1: I mean, it's easy for us to be armchair quarterbacks, mm-hmm. but this is this is not our job to do this. Uh, this is the the job of the Ford Progressive Conservatives, and certainly they could have looked to their counterparts in British Columbia. David, uh, they seem much more efficient in getting these shots out to their nursing home residents, and also are uh, setting a target of February and March to give the vaccine to all seniors over 80, which is a good month month and a half before we'll be doing. Doing that here in Ontario. Well, I
3: think they have a more coherent plan, frankly. But I also think, and this is this speaks to I'm I'm going to be maybe a little sympathetic to the to the government, but it also speaks to the need to be candid and to be clear. And I think that that's been part of their problem here. In fairness, they are. They're not sure what the doses will be. They're not sure what the quantity will be. The deliveries are completely out of their hands and in the hands of the feds. But I think uh, Peter's right uh, and the critics are right that why wouldn't you take the finite quantity that you have and get every single resident vaccinated first to save immediate lives and move on from there? So I I, I think that the between the administrative glitches and the communications glitches. Uh, they look, maybe they even look worse than they, than they should look. Mm-hmm. Maybe their performance is better, but it's just such a hot mess in terms of what they tell us that uh, you, you, you jump to the worst conclusions, I'm afraid. Bill,
1: did you want to add to that conversation about the vaccines for residents in long-term care?
2: I, oh, sorry, you were asking, Bill. Yes, I, I, I do. The, you know, the one thing we can do is we can look at other provinces, not just BC. And what they did very differently was they centered their vaccine program out of long-term care facilities, where in Ontario, we centered it out of hospitals. And that's, so we saw hospital uh, employees and even hospital employees who don't seem to have had any good reason to get it, to get Mm -hmm. the vaccine before it was in long-term care if we had recognized in the beginning that long term care homes were the place we needed to be first and even the naci the national advisory committee on immunization told us that the premier said that he would follow their recommendations and then they didn't they started in hospitals and not in long term care facilities so the the poor planning right from the beginning has uh, made death failure uh, most likely uh, for them and they'd better change that now or they're going to run into the same uh, position where what we're having now is more, more deaths, more sickness in long-term care than we had at the beginning of the uh, epidemic in the first wave.
1: Okay, I want to get to our phone calls. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 866 740 We're talking about what is now a devastating second wave in long-term care in Ontario and the very slow and what appears to be inefficient rollout of the vaccines to long-term care residents in this province. Let's go to Murray in Malton. Go ahead, Murray, you're on the air. Hi hello everybody and you know, I hope everybody had a good holiday. Uh my point
3: is these uh homes that uh apparently are not uh looking after their uh people whether they're residents or employees they should be uh held re- financially responsible for these people's funerals because obviously they're looking after their bottom line and they're not looking after the people in the, that they're in care of. So I, I think they should be punished this way.
1: Yeah, inter- thank you Murray, thanks for your call. Let's talk about that. In terms of punishment for these providers and in the case of um of Roberta Place Peter, it is uh the owner is, sorry, I had it right here. Uh, Jarlett uh, Jarlette Health Services. Mhm. Yes.
4: Yeah, well um Murray brings up an interesting point like um so so put a put a uh, you know a penalty on performance so if, if if you have massive outbreaks causing massive deaths then your home should be in in some way um you, you know financially punished for that so it would be an incentive for homes to you know clean up their act and and make sure that these um you know these failures that creep in um you root them out before before they cause such such tragedy you know so so maybe murray's right maybe maybe, maybe like a, some sort of financial penalty is in order
1: david your thoughts on that well i think that i think that it's a
3: it's an excellent point but you see quite the opposite approach being taken by the government that's interesting itself in uh, legislation to uh, protect uh, them from liability I think it's in in real life law, it's probably very complicated. You'd have to prove negligence. You'd have to, their defense would be that many other homes that were properly protected nevertheless had some deaths. I mean, it's a very slippery slope, but Murray's point is a very good one in another sense that uh, if it isn't financial liability, then what is it? Where are the consequences, if any? To the administrators, and Doug Ford said he was going to come down like a 80-pound or whatever weight, 100-pound gorilla in the big box stores yes. if they violated anything. What's the consequence for failure in the long-term care homes? We say that on the government side, it should be you lose your job, a little minister. What is it for the operators? And right now, it appears to be nothing.
1: And they don't that even is have
3: to respond to the infection.
1: That is the tragic irony in all of this. So where is the eight hundred pound gorilla when it comes to sure. nursing homes? Absolutely, and I know you spoke with Libby about this last week, right, uh, Bill? We're getting to that stage where second wave deaths in LTC are getting close to matching the first wave deaths.
2: We are, yeah. and and uh, you know when we talk about uh, as as David and, and Peter said about about uh, holding people responsible. Uh, It's also, you know, it's a little bit like trying to close the barn door after the, the the, the horse is out. What the government is not, doing and what they are not admitting is they don't have consistent enforced regulations. If there were regulations that all the long-term care homes were, were held to before this all happened and if the inspections were being followed through and if the homes were being forced to live up to these regulations, then much of this would not have happened. So, so talk about what we're going to do uh, about past uh, past sins. What we really need to do right now is make sure that there are regulations that are being inspected and the homes are being held held to them, so that this doesn't happen again or doesn't continue uh, to get worse. The the government can't pass the responsibility off and make it look like it's just poor management by by these uh, facilities. It's poor regulations, poor enforcement by the province, and they are responsible for that.
1: And Peter, here we are, where effectively in some of the nursing homes, no question, they need extra help, be it the armed forces, the Canadian Red Cross. And it, it doesn't take anybody too brilliant to see that Premier Ford and Marilee Fullerton don't want the military back in there so that they can raise a bunch of flags again about how nothing's been done to protect the residents. Yeah.
4: And, and like how how would Ford react or Fullerton react if they did come in and they, they filed another scathing report just as bad as the first, how bad would that look on the government? Exactly. So they, they certainly don't want that kind of exposure. And, um, you know, it, it looks like, in Roberta um, as if a few hands on deck could have helped uh, alleviate a lot of the, a lot of the deaths if, if they had just moved residents who um, were not tested positive out of the rooms of those who had. Um, that's just that's just hands on on deck, you know, and and maybe the military in there could have could have helped alleviate some of the tragedy.
1: Uh, Before we talk about um, our final question that I've got for for the Zoomer squad, uh, David, I want to know, in terms of the petition at carp.ca, which is calling for Premier Ford to let his long-term care minister go for not protecting residents in the second wave— when would we see action? What number do the signatures have to get to before we see some action by the Ford government?
3: Well, based on, based on, uh, I don't want to be glib here and say that there's a magic number and then Ford is going to say, you're right, she's fired. I think that would be <laughs> nice. We've crossed 6,000 signatures. We're showing no signs of uh, slowing down. And, um, we think that if he doesn't uh, get rid of the minister, and to be blunt, he may not. It's entirely up to him uh, to tough it out or not. Uh, it's certainly going to morph into an election issue, and we'll make sure of that.
1: Let's go to Helen in Toronto. Helen, what would you like to add?
5: Well, uh... The previous speaker was talking about separating people from the negative and positive. My mother is 98 in long-term care, and I spearheaded a campaign on my own because there are 20 in her unit, 12 were positive, they didn't get moved, my mother didn't get moved, and then two more from another floor became positive, and they moved them onto the same floor. Mm. And my... my, uh, my my project went all the way up to Doug Ford, whose office said we're forwarding this to Maryleef Fullerton. I put a closing date on my project, self-imposed, uh, Wednesday the thirteenth of January, on this, and it hadn't come through. Now I've typed up the summary of my notes, and I'm sending it to um, a few people who should know about it. Sure, who should. Do something, though I doubt that they will because it's just too plain, easy, and logical. I had suggested field hospitals way back then. And when you've got four in a room and nowhere to move them, that's the ideal. Or so I think.
1: Bill, look, you've got family members like Helen. Look how proactive Helen is being on behalf uh, of her fam, of her loved one. And yet, and these are the stories we're hearing at carp.ca as well. And yet, there's no re- ro- reaction.
2: That's right. And, and uh, uh, one of the things that, that people like Helen can do, and Helen, thank you for, for taking the lead on doing something like this, is make sure that your local elected representatives know that you as a voter are concerned about that. Because frankly, that's when governments really begin to listen, is when their when elected officials tell them this is affecting our, uh, our voters. And ask your friends, to do the same thing and uh, keep it up. Uh, send send your report to CARP too. We'll be glad to help uh, spread it even further too.
1: I want to go around the table here before I let you gentlemen go. Our Zoomer squad here is with us on a Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby. Today is uh, one year, one year since uh, the first case in Canada was confirmed, the first COVID-19 case at that time called the novel coronavirus, a 56-year-old man who'd been to China where the virus was spreading and and, uh, went to Sunnybrook, had symptoms of mild pneumonia. And within two days, a year ago today, the results came back that he was COVID positive. He did recover. Um, one of the lucky ones. When we go around the table here, Peter, when you think about, um, the pandemic, the one year mark, you know, how has it changed you personally? And, and how do you think it's changed society for the good and the bad? Well,
4: a, a personal story. Uh, on, on the weekend, I ran into an old friend I hadn't seen for years, and we—I instinctively reached out to shake his hand, and because I'm, I'm from the handshaking generation, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he recoiled in horror, like "Don't touch me," you know. So, so that kind of uh, the, the social interaction is, is going to has changed immensely, and it's going to take a long time before we get back to sort of shaking hands and hugging and. You know, being close to people like like it, it, that's something I'm 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 not I wasn't used to, and I, I can't get used to elbow bumps or fist bumps, and and so that that's that for me that's one of the biggest changes. It's just this this barrier we've put up around ourselves. Uh, is that ever going to come down again,
1: David? Your thoughts?
3: Well, I think it's uh, made me very conscious of uh, what each individual must do to protect themselves and not rely on quote unquote the system. Uh, You can support the system. The system is good. The regulations are important, but we just have to be so much more vigilant ourselves all the time. That's number one. And number two, I think that the um, use of online uh, resources, both for shopping and information and even personal contact, is not going to uh, diminish. I think that's a permanent change uh, in the way we operate.
1: Bill, your thoughts on the one year since the first COVID case confirmed? Well,
2: you know, Esther and I feel uh, very lucky that uh, uh, we have uh, many friends, we have activities to be involved with, although uh, virtually we we feel uh, sorry for our single friends, people who are alone, try to keep up with them. But like uh, Peter was saying, uh, our hobby is theater. And as you know, Uh, theater people are ones who love to hug and not being able to hug in these times is probably one of the most difficult uh, uh, things we've had to do. And we hope that maybe by this time next year, there'll be a reasonable facsimile of of what it was like before. And we'll be able to go back and enjoy our, our friends and and hold and touch as we could before.
1: We will leave it there. Thank you all. Libby, we'll talk to you all again on uh, next Monday, which is February 1st. Thanks, Zoomer Squad.
2: Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane.
1: Bill Van Gorder is Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Peter Muggerich is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravitz is Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. The Zoomer Squad got you thinking about the one-year mark. I want to hear how the pandemic has changed your life and how you think it's changed society, maybe even permanently, and whether that's a good or bad thing. Your phone calls and our panel of experts coming up next. Numbers to call, 416 360 Toll free, 1-866-740-4740. A year ago today, the first case of the new coronavirus was confirmed in Canada. Now think about all that we've been through since January 25th, 2020, and how different the world is a year later. We'd like to hear from you about how the pandemic has changed you short-term and long-term. 416-360-0740. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty, and it may not be all bad. Uh, you might have had some realizations or or moments over the last year where you realize what's really important to you as a result of the pandemic, and that is certainly a good thing. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty on the line with us to get the discussion going. Sanjay Khanna, futurist and CEO. and a macro trends expert, as well as Jack Jedwab, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. Let's look back. First of all, uh, hello, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us.
6: Hello, Jane. It's a a pleasure. It's Sanjay here. And and hi, Jack.
1: I'd like to uh, look back before we go forward. Uh, Jack, from your polling, let's talk about how COVID-19 has changed the, the lives of Canadians.
7: Well, it changed our lives in uh, many ways. Uh, I think one of the principal things that we could identify that explains a number of other phenomena is the lack of mobility we've had. So the visits with family and friends that have been uh, reduced, if not in my home province as a result of curfews we have here, uh, diminished in some cases altogether or uh, eliminated altogether. Uh, So in addition to that, uh, uh, travel has been... Diminished, if not altogether reduced. Uh, we're closing our borders. We've closed our land borders from the front. Uh, other people have tried to escape by air, and now we're uh, putting a stop to that, uh, other than for humanitarian reasons, which I actually think is a good thing to do. Uh, but again, all these things are uh, characteristic of more limited mobility. Uh, not going to work or working out of our homes uh, more frequently. Another uh, important area where there's been very, very significant change, some of which I think will persist after the pandemic. Uh, but all these changes in our lifestyle, a lot of them, as I said, uh, uh, I could sort of find that common characteristic of limits on our movement and mobility that have, have been, I think, some of the big changes.
1: Jack, we've also had a lot of people lose their jobs, lose their livelihoods, uh, and are on federal funding, at least for the interim, um, hoping that they can get their professions back.
7: Right, and that's been an absolutely massive change, the economic effects on many of us uh, and they've been uneven, so some people who are vulnerable prior to the pandemic have become even more vulnerable, and unemployment rose quite substantially, and we still have relatively high levels of unemployment. Uh, a lot of us have been dependent on some of those programs the government has uh, pre- introduced, like the CERB, and so those all have had important effects on us economically, and the economic effects also have another effect on our mental health and well-being. We've seen... Yes. Uh, Substantial increases in problems associated with mental health. Uh, we have a new survey we're releasing this week on, uh, stress and anxiety and stress levels have gone up quite significantly. And actually in the past eight weeks, we've seen stress levels go up as case numbers have gone up and as there have been further reductions in our ability to move and to be mobile and so forth. And, uh, so a whole range of effects we've seen from COVID-19, uh, and impacts on our lifestyle, on our economic and social situations that are are quite quite significant and uneven, as I said.
1: That was going to be my next question, and uh, I guess this is related to your survey coming out soon. How well, on the whole, have we adapted to the change?
7: I think some of us have adapted. Uh, There's sort of a scale of adapting well to not adapting very well, and across that spectrum, we've seen variations in uh, the way people have adapted. Uh, it was easier for people to adapt who are already in, I think, more comfortable situations if you're living in areas where you don't need to be as mobile or uh, where, for example, there's more space. And space has become a big commodity in the sort of COVID period. Uh, and so those people have been able to adjust and adapt uh, better, I would suggest. Uh, but a lot of people have had a very great deal of difficulty adapting and that's created some of those uh, mental health challenges which we've I've been monitoring through surveys for about 44 weeks now and uh, have seen some uh, real significant issues and uh, compounding that is access to certain services. So access to health services, access to uh, mental health services uh, have all been a bit more challenging. So uh, the the situation gets even more compounded. On the other side of it, if we're looking for uh, one positive aspect of it, a lot of people have come to appreciate what they've already had, had or have and, uh and i think we've seen more empathy grow arising out of the situation we're in but uh and there are other dimensions of it that some people may think are positive that don't i think outweigh the uh considerable negative we've seen arising from this but uh at least as regards some lessons that people have learned it's Sort of valuing the importance of family and friends
1: uh, not, as one. Not to be too flip, but a lot of us have become better cooks as a result of the pandemic right. and not eating out as much. Uh, you know, our very small group of colleagues here at the Zoomerplex, um, we will often have conversations daily about what we prepared the night before, what we're going to prepare that night. Food has become very integral to our lives during this pandemic. Uh, those are the kinds of things, you know, we are interested in, hearing you share with us about how the pandemic has changed you, um, how you've reacted to it. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Sanjay, before we talk about how COVID uh, has changed our evolution into the future, uh, tell us first what exactly is a futurist?
6: Thanks, Jane. Uh, a futurist is someone who uses a, a disciplined methodology to develop plausible scenarios about the way things may play out in the months or years ahead. The key is to inform plausible future worlds based on evidence from many areas of global change, from geopolitics to wealth and income inequality to technological shifts, climate change and global health. In fact, many of the things that um, Jack has has mentioned, and and you could tell from listening uh, to Jack that that when you dive more deeply into what the implications are, they cut completely across society and touch every meaningful aspect of of human life, which is why um, uh, in the work I do, I use the lens of converging crises. You have crises in multiple areas uh, affecting the entire system, uh, our, our entire society.
1: So it's not so much that you're telling the future, but you're taking the parts of the present and and putting the different factors on them and seeing what could emerge as we go forward.
6: Correct. Uh, all foresight work in the, the the approach that that I take is to see everyone participating in scenario process as a scenario learner. And what you're trying to do is identify blind spots in the present that would make it harder for you to potentially adapt to a plausible world that's more challenging than today's or has different opportunities than today's. So, for example, if we see climate change and another pandemic coming together or, in fact, this pandemic and uh, extreme weather events, uh, in these cases, we'll see certain kinds of interactions and shocks that we would want to have prepared for before today, but in the future, we will want to prepare for better.
1: So give us a little bit more of an example of what it is you're doing to consider implications of the pandemic short-term and longer-term.
6: So, Recently, I've written um, a report for one of the world's uh, largest uh, law firms looking at the implications of COVID-19 on global health, on society, on uh, industries, And on uh, the practice of law, I'm working on a project on the future of uh, gambling, uh, on the future of children's uh, justice uh, as part of the World Congress on Justice with Children, uh, and on the future of learning communities in higher education and how uh, higher education institutions can adapt to um, the shock that COVID-19 has caused and how they adapt to it sort of going through the rest of the pandemic and then coming out of it.
1: Hmm. Uh, And, you know, a lot of us uh, who are involved in this conversation right now are two experts, uh, myself and all of you out there listening. Uh, Zoomer Radio caters to an older, more mature audience. We've all been around a while. We've seen trends come and go. You know, I'm really curious after the year that we've all been through. I'd like to hear from you what you think the future will bring based on what we've all experienced and what we're still going to experience for months to come before a mass vaccination can take place 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866-740-4740 I'm here with Jack Jedwab president of the Association for Canadian Studies and Sanjay Khanna futurist and macro trends expert um if we talk about all of the areas of our lives affected by the pandemic maybe we you know concentrate on what's happened and what could happen Uh, certainly um, the social and humor interactions. It's interesting, my last panel, I asked them about what they miss the most. And and Jack, um, handshaking, hugging, that's what they're missing, is that human touch.
7: Yeah, I agree. And uh, that's come up in a number of our surveys, uh, particularly when I put in an open-ended question. So if I just ask people straight out what they miss the most without... Uh, offering them a series of potential responses. Uh, it's contact with family and friends that they seem to, uh, identify in pretty, pretty readily. And then we get into the issue a bit more deeply. That whole human contact, uh, is very important to people. It's interesting because, you know, you, uh, gatherings have been, of course, banned and, uh, to a significant extent, some parts of Canada, at least gatherings of, of, of more than a, a minimal number of people. Uh And we see, if we watch sports, empty stadiums, uh, far fewer, if any, weddings uh, in the past uh, year, uh, unless they're sort of done on Zoom or some other video conference platform. So that whole idea- area of uh face-to-face contact, of people being able to shake hands, hug each other, uh, uh, not see people constantly on screens uh, where they... Sometimes feel like television characters as opposed to real people right. uh, is is, an, is a really significant dimension of this, uh, and we'll see how we come out of this. And that's also true for I, I, I mentioned earlier about working from home, but there's also studying the impact that uh, Sanjay was referring to. Study I gather he's doing in this area, uh, uh, the whole issue of online learning, which so many uh, university students are now experiencing, and and mm-hmm. as our high school students as well, and. And, and that changes the nature of our interaction, the very way we learn and the very way in which we engage people. And, and in fact, if I just might add, even the social distancing issue, uh, you know, I, I sometimes think that if uh, I were uh, an alien from another planet and I was taking overhead uh, sort of uh, photos or film of people uh, trying to get around each other, it would look as though humans just don't like to interact with each other, right? Where, where we're constantly trying to circle around and keep the distance. So even things like that have a powerful impact, I would suggest on our whole uh, uh, way of, of interacting and engaging with, with other people.
1: Sanjay, what do you think about that the, the future of social and human physical interactions once we're through all of this?
6: Well, one thing we know from uh, you know child development and human development is that um, interaction and close interaction, uh, physical touching uh, in childhood, etc uh, improves intelligence and is a key part of uh, brain development, and then of memory formation, and then of you know of, of ha- having an extended view into relationships um, in, in adult life, and so I think it's going to come back. I think it's so built and tuned into us that um, there's a craving and and hunger um, for for the interaction that um, both you and uh, Jack described as, as you know people sort of expressing that um, this is really, really important and one of the greatest things they they miss. And it's because of all the interconnections that also awakens within us when we have that close contact and that intimacy. Um, and uh, people express that differently. But I think in this, you know, people will wonder about how to go about it. The vaccinations will be a key piece of this. Um, you know, we still may have to wear masks and physically distance if after a vaccine, uh, it's still possible to transmit uh, the virus. But the more that's done, the more that sort of falls away, I think there's going to be a real uh, hunger for, for human contact that people will express socially.
1: That leads us to the next question, which I will keep until uh, we get back from a quick break about uh, the future of technology, specifically all the different Zoom-like platforms, uh, how that will survive or will it after the pandemic? That's coming up next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby will be back tomorrow. We are acknowledging uh, the one-year mark uh, since the very first confirmed COVID-19 case in Canada. One year. January 25th, 2020, and here we are a year later. Uh, I'm joined by Sanjay Khanna, futurist and macro trends expert, as well as Jack Jedwab, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. And if you're just joining us, we're talking about how the pandemic has changed us, individually, as a society for the good uh and for the bad. 416-360-0740 if you'd like to get in on the conversation, toll-free 1-866 Before we went to break, I teased the idea about technology and and all the Zoom calls or Zoom-like calls we've all been on for the last year. Jack, um, your thoughts about whether that's something that might continue uh, once this is all over?
7: Yeah, I think the uh, video conferencing platforms like Zoom and uh, others will probably continue to be popular. I don't think, however, uh, that the uh, uh, interest in them and the enthusiasm about them, which was sort of demonstrated in some of the earlier polls we did it which surprised me a bit how much people thought Zoom was just terrific and it was great to be able to interact with people uh this way, especially given what's going on. I'm not sure it's going to stick as much because I'm getting the impression some of the more recent survey work we're doing that people are getting kind of bored mm-hmm. of the uh, sort of zoom platforms and actually do want to go out and and interact with people so uh that uh Going to be something I think we'll have to follow. But I would say that in terms of people who travel for business, I suspect a lot of uh, companies and government will say, "Hey, is this an area where expenditures can be reduced by simply doing the the meetings on video conferencing platforms rather than actually traveling?" I think you'll see a lot more of that because it is an area where cuts can, I think, uh, be. uh, uh, important enough to make a difference in certain budgets, but uh, we'll have to see.
1: Right. Sanjay, what are your thoughts on the future of technology and, and all this video calling we've all been doing this past year?
6: I think, you know, part of it, uh, just picking up on on Jack's thoughts and maybe building on those, um, you know, certainly with higher speed networks, uh, with uh, 5G and mobile phones and things like that, there's a chance for providers to provide more high-fidelity virtual experiences um, on the business side. And, um, you know, I think in terms of looking at the the wreckage that is being caused by COVID in terms of the impact on businesses, they're going to be those businesses who use the advantage they may have because of maybe being seen as the quote-unquote winners of this pandemic, where they might uh, do more sort of in-person meetings uh, safely, uh, going through sort of safe travel zones and uh, hotels and maybe even private jets in certain cases um, in order to have that physical inter- interaction, you know, and face-to-face meetings for for big uh, important deals and so on. Um, but I think in the main, the businesses that have been hit hard uh, financially by this are going to uh, want to use the best quality um, virtual technologies that they can use. And then on the travel side, um, you know, there's going to be people who this year – Uh, tech startups and uh, tech companies that experiment with uh, virtual uh, virtual apps that again make you know or virtual reality headsets uh, for meetings or for new kinds of experiences maybe to entice people to travel when they can by showing them uh, what the experience is really like in another location Um, you might see virgin galactic doing stuff like virtual reality tours when they when they can get people back up in, in space and so on so There's going to be some um, cutting-edge uses of the technology, but in the main, uh, Jack's correct. I think a lot of organizations are going to try to reduce costs, uh, especially Mm -hmm. if they were hit economically by the pandemic.
1: Yeah, that does make sense. But in terms of the, the personal interactions, it's funny, you know, we... Um, my husband and I got off a call with five or six other couples that in the beginning we were talking to every single Friday last spring. And when we wrapped up this time, um, we haven't talked in, in quite a while because we were able to see each other from a distance during the summer. But we, we signed off by saying, how about in a month from now? Whereas last spring we were all excited to, to see each other every week on Zoom because it was new. So I mean are you both in agreement that once we can actually be with people, we will wanna be with people? Jack? Uh
7: yeah, I think that there'll be a combination of uh things. I mean also that's gonna depend on distance. So the thing that Zoom has done, uh, which was happening before the pandemic obviously is these uh technologies are narrowing the distance between us and uh and people in different parts of the uh, of the planet, right? So I could be talking to Florida right now and doing all my work from Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, the problem, of course, is that I would have difficulty getting back to Canada without quarantining and doing other such things, and I happen not to be there in Montreal. But I'm saying that, you know, the sense of geography and sense of place uh, that uh, the technologies have uh, facilitated in terms of where, where we are in the work environment and socially, uh, that will persist. But that intimate contact uh, that we desire... Uh, I think, is something that we're going to see a lot of breakout when this is over, uh, where people will want to get back to doing more of that. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the balance looks like.
1: Sanjay, in the interest of time, I also want to ask you both about the future of travel, recreational travel. Uh, how do you see that rebounding? And, of course, it will rebound once we get through the pandemic.
6: Um, part of it is going to depend on how well the virus is controlled in various jurisdictions and in various places that, that people want to travel. Um, wherever there's the most control, you'll see, um, you know, sort of the, the, the people trying to gravitate towards those regions in order to uh, to get that safe sort of travel experience. But it's not going to normalize for um for quite some time, uh, particularly a vaccine rollouts in many of the places that people want to go to for warm weather—whether it's Southeast Asia, um, uh, whether it's uh, countries in South America, um, whether it's Mexico—these are places that um, uh, have the virus completely out of control, and where vaccination programs are going to be um, very—they're uh, going to stutter um, before uh, there's enough control of the virus in those areas. So, I think it's going to—it's still going to be quite tough for. Uh, for travel.
1: What do you think, Jack? Are you seeing some an enthusiasm among the people you survey to get back on a plane when they are able to do so to travel?
7: I think, yeah, people want to do that, but they're still quite skittish about doing it. And I think they'll remain skittish even after the vaccine rollout. Uh, there'll still be a, a fair percentage of the population that, even vaccinated, will still feel a bit uncomfortable about traveling. Uh, and, you know, again, that's going to be a rollout period, so we'll have to see uh, how things progress. But You know, anxiety will persist even when we reach the percentage of people that are required level for vaccination. And, and as Sanjay rightly mentioned in many other countries, uh, where the rollout is going to be a lot slower and the recovery period is going to be a lot slower, uh, countries that don't have the resources to make this thing happen at the pace that we're able to make it happen, uh, we're going to see a lot more uh, anxiety about traveling to those destinations. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. I think there's a lot of imponderables right now in terms of trying to project where this is all headed and what a timeline might look like, but I think we'll know more by the fall of this year uh, where things are progressing and how they will progress.
1: All right, we will leave it there. I thank you both for your time. It's been very interesting.
7: Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Sanjay. Bye-bye.
1: Jack Jedwab, president of the Association for Canadian Studies, and Sanjay Khanna, futurist and macro trends expert. Jane Ferlibby, who returns tomorrow, she'll be with the strategy panel. That's always a spicy conversation. You will want to tune in for that right after the new news. And if you are thinking later in the day, oh, I wish I'd called in on what we were talking about, you can do so on our voicemail 247 416